Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. This holiday weekend, some of us are gathering with our families after a long time. And as you sit around the table, maybe you swap stories. Some of them truthful, some of them maybe a bit more fanciful. Well, we've got a storytelling treat for you today. We're going to tell you about some legends and how they've left their mark on our state. There's always going to be questions. Are any of these people telling the truth? You know, it's, it's, it's a perfect blank slate for people to project. I mean, I think we have 92 religions here. <laughs> Seriously. There's a poster sticker that says we're all here because we're not all there. One version is that Lalo punished her and turned her into La Siwanaba for being a bad mother and a bad wife. Who determines that? What is a bad woman? Why is it bad to have spirit? People make pilgrimages here. Like, that is that is what it is. It's, it's like a New Age Mecca. You'll hear a lot of people talking about Lemuria, maybe even asking for directions. You'll have to tell me when you find it. <laughs> I'm not trying to steal anybody's scary story or criticize or even patronize our folklore and our sayings, but it is important to know the history and the roots and also how to rethink it. Our first story takes us to the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco, to this massive blue mural I'm standing in front of. It's two stories high and 60 feet long, and it's painted in all of these different shades of blue. It's got a lot of images of waves and cascading water and a lot of figures of different women. In the center, there's Chalchutlikwe. She's the Aztec goddess of lakes and streams. And in the background, there are images of women from Bolivia and India and the U.S.-Mexico border all standing together. In the foreground, you can see this woman. She's kind of standing off to the side. She's stretching out her hand, almost like she's reaching out to you. She's got a giant teardrop falling from her eye. And she's holding a child in her arms in a way that looks almost protective and nurturing. This mural is called La Llorona's Sacred Waters. And it was painted by the Bay Area artist Juana Alicia 17 years ago. Now, if you've grown up with the legend of La Llorona, you might be surprised to see her looking like this in this mural. Because the way people tell her story, both in Mexico and here in California, is that La Llorona's a ghost. She's the spirit of a woman who haunts watery places, wailing for her lost children, not protecting them. 
Well, today we're going to explore the legend of La Llorona and how she's evolved over the generations. We're bringing you a story from our friends at the KQED podcast, Bay Curious. Here's reporter Sebastian Mino Buccelli. For many Latinx people here in California, the story of La Llorona is one that you've heard growing up, just told slightly different each time. My family mainly used it to as like a scare tactic for my mom and my tias when they were younger. That's Gabriela. And because the legend is something that so many people grew up with, I asked her and some of my coworkers what they remember first hearing about La Llorona. Among all the different variations of the legend, there are common themes. The ghost of a weeping woman who haunts the waters and cries out for her children. Like my coworker Carlos says, Because she wells this, like, mis hijos, mis hijos, uh, which means my kids, my kids. Um, and they said that she had drowned her own kids and that she would, you know, walk around the rivers where she, the river where she drowned them, feeling, you know, guilty of what she had done. She drowns her children and she, they say that her soul is not rested because she also killed herself, um, you know, with Catholicism, that's a huge sin, suicide. They say that since her soul is not laid to rest, she's out there um, searching for children. And because of that, she's often made into a terrifying ghost on the lookout for new children, and she wants to take them. Or maybe, as Carlos says, she's defending something. You know, it's looking for them, pushing away anybody that threatens things that are special to her, like her children or rivers, because rivers, you know, both in Mexico and in the rest of the world can really be the lifeline of a city, of a community. There's also a traditional song about La Llorona. You may have heard it sung growing up, or more recently in the movie Coco. So I'm actually Ecuadorian-American, and I remember being warned by my childhood friends who were Mexican that if we didn't behave, La Llorona would come get us. But if you only know La Llorona from childhood stories, trust me, this legend goes far beyond those. And it's the deep history and the evolution of the legend that brings us all the way to La Llorona's very different appearance on that mural in the mission. I want to know more about how the legend of La Llorona got started. So I called up Professora Leticia Hernandez, a writer, artist, and poet who teaches oral history at San Francisco State University. Even though there's Llorona myths throughout Latin America, I often associate it more with Mexican culture. And I think that's how we, we hear about it in, in California or the United States. For many, La Llorona symbolizes Malinse, the woman who's said to have been kidnapped by Hernán Cortés to aid his invasion of Mexico, or help them by choice, depending on who's writing the history books. In this telling, La Llorona becomes a symbol of the injustices of colonization. 
Some folks say that it starts at, you know, at conquest. Others say it predates conquest with all of these incredibly complex and mythical Aztec goddesses and deities, right? Um, then you have the rendition that, you know, La Llorona is associated with Cuatlicue, the Aztec earth goddess who gave birth to the sun, moon, and stars. And that's connected to Siwateteo, right? Which is the um, the deity of women who die in childbirth. I mean, it could get really complex there, right? Professor Hernandez says that even if this legend predates colonization in 1519, the moment Hernan Cortez arrived, the way European colonizers wrote the history books about Malinche or La Malinche, it lays the emphasis on her as a negative force, a woman that stepped out of line. The way that um, the female figure of La Malinche has been demonized and constructed throughout history is problematic, especially because that, that narrative has been controlled by the heteropatriarchy and makes a, a woman who was most likely a victim into a villain. There are variations on not just who La Llorona is, but what she's doing and what happened to her children. And that there's a lot of mystery around it, too, right? It's like, oh, she was scorned by a lover, so she, you know, drowned her children out of grief. But then she's grieving forever in this limbo. And that kind of gets close to that whole bad mother narrative, too, right? So super complicated. Professora Hernandez's heritage is Salvadoran. And she says so much of La Llorona's legend reminds her of La Sinawe, a Central American story that shares a lot of DNA with La Llorona. La Sinawe is a supernatural creature that takes the form of a woman cursed by the god Lalog, who also stalks the waters and brings vengeance upon men and children. If you look at the legend, it gets more problematic because it becomes more like a spirited girl or a woman with spirit is monstrous. One version is that Lalo punished her and turned her into La Siwanaba for being a bad mother and a bad wife. Who determines that? What is a bad woman? Why is it bad to have spirit? Of course, says Professor Hernandez, for many people, La Llorona is a simple ghost story. And that's okay. Sure, I'm wearing my profe hat right now, but like, hey, I'm not trying to steal anybody's scary story or criticize or even patronize our folklore and our sayings. But it is important to know the history and the roots and also how to rethink it. And to connect us back to Juan Alicia's mural of La Llorona and the Mission for a moment, Professor Hernandez has actually written about this artwork a bunch and how it, in her own words, frees the spirit of women from roles as monstrous creatures of folklore to warrior women of history. As Juana Alicia herself explains, because La Llorona contains multitudes, she can be used as a symbol for so many things in a mural like this. The issues of water and climate justice and feminism uh, all come up. Racial justice, mixed heritage issues, um, they're all there. On that wall, La Llorona isn't a ghost. She's flesh and blood. She's protecting a child, not threatening it. And remember how my colleague Carlos mentioned how La Llorona is also known to defend the water she haunts? You could say she's playing that water protector role right here on this mural. Even where Juan Alicia chose to paint her mural is symbolic. First of all, it's a neighborhood that I, I love. But it's where the raza is. Um, it's where people were being evicted rapidly. 
Um, it, again, it's like an anchor. It's like a cultural anchor. It's like a holding on to sacred space in a neighborhood that I could no longer afford to live in. And most of my compatriots could not afford to live in either. La Llorona can be a symbol of complex womanhood, of being torn between two worlds, but also of loss of many kinds. How people interpret her can be incredibly personal. Just ask journalist Lina Blanco, my colleague here at KQED. So when I first heard the story, the figure of La Llorona as like a ghost who wanders at night, it was never one that scared me because I've seen scary things in my life that are not about a ghost wandering at night wanting to steal children. For Lina, La Llorona wasn't someone to be afraid of. The legend, as she learned it from the works of Latinx writers and musicians, was more of someone to learn from. The, the stories of La Llorona that I gravitated to, to never showed La Llorona as a victim, never showed La Llorona as a vengeful spirit, but instead showed this model of someone who was looking, but then also a bridge and a connecting force between the world that is living and the world that is dead. As a queer, mixed Chicana coming of age in different places, Lena said she didn't see something to fear in the story of La Llorona. Instead, she saw parts of herself. In all the stories, La Llorona wanders in the night making those sounds. It's because she's grieving, she's in pain, and she's showing it. And sometimes, other people can find grief kind of frightening. Whether or not this, this mother figure, La Llorona, lost her kids because she killed them or lost them because um, sh- they, they were lost to the dark night or by colonization, wh- whatever it is, I think when someone is grieving and when someone is holding on to deep loss, people fear that too. For Lina, the way La Llorona grieves isn't scary. It's relatable because she knows how it feels to be misunderstood this way. And having experienced grief as a young kid, no one knew what to do with me. No one knew how to talk to me. And then they were like, they let me go into this fantasy world of my own um, to find my own ways of navigating through that. So I was on the other side. I lost my mom. She didn't lose me, but I lost my mom. So I parts of me have gone around the world calling out for, for her. And that's why I feel the connection um, to, yeah, someone who goes looking for their loved ones who are gone. Um, We all do some of that. Just like the story of La Llorona shifts and evolves, so does a song about her. It takes on new words, and it gets new verses. And this is the version Lena herself likes to sing. Maybe on one of these colder nights, just as the sun is starting to set, you'd like to head over to the Mission District and encounter La Llorona on that huge mural by Juan Alicia. If you only heard the ghost story, she might not look like what you expect. But if there's one thing about La Llorona, is that she keeps her power to surprise.
That story was reported by Sebastian Migno Buccelli and edited by Carly Severn and the team at Bay Curious. Tape from the interview with artist Juana Alicia is courtesy of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. It was recorded as part of their Mission Murals project, which documents the Latinx mural-making culture that emerged in San Francisco's Mission District during the 1970s. do when we're presented with something that we just can't explain? Do we just chalk it up to the supernatural or to superstition? Well, we've got quite a story for you from our archives now. It first aired back in 2018. Reporter Kat Shooknecht explores the mystery of a bizarre 60-foot deep hole that once appeared on Mount Shasta and tells us why a guy who worked at an old-school video store might just have some answers. Shasta tonight has likely showers of snow. About 10 years ago, the Forest Service was doing a routine patrol on Mount Shasta near the Oregon border when they discovered a giant hole. The thing looked like a mine shaft. You could have fit a semi-truck in it. And from what the agents could tell, someone had dug the hole by hand, using buckets on a makeshift pulley system to haul the dirt out. The only clues the diggers left behind were a ladder, some buckets, and a plastic water bottle. The incident was written up in the local newspaper, and everyone in town had a theory about who was responsible. Elijah Sullivan has heard all of them. People would go up there and look in this hole and just sort of scratch their chins and say, what on earth was this about? What were they looking for? Elijah grew up in Mount Shasta. Most people know me as the guy from the video store. And he spent the last six years tracking three theories about why someone dug the hole and what they were looking for inside the mountain, all for a documentary film he's working on, which he's calling The Whole Story. All the different competing theories very much mirrored everybody's different beliefs around here. The first, and admittedly the weirdest, theory about what the diggers were looking for at the bottom of the hole starts with people who Shasta locals call seekers. So, let me just show you something. This is Bev Wilson. She runs a crystal shop in Mount Shasta. You want to just back up a little bit because it's pretty loud. She's trying to explain something to me that's difficult to put into words. She's trying to explain the concept of Lemuria. So this hole is as close to Lemuria as I can get you from here. It opens up a portal, that's all. A portal to Lemuria, which is a lost continent like Atlantis that some people believe is hidden beneath Mount Shasta, along with its capital crystalline city, Telos. The name Lemuria comes from a 19th century English zoologist, He believed that lemurs had used the lost continent as a land bridge to migrate from India to Madagascar. Seekers is the word Shasta locals like Elijah use as a kind of catch-all for people who feel drawn to Mount Shasta by spiritual forces, from occultists and Buddhists to channelers and shamanic healers. I mean, I think we have 92 religions here. (laughs) Seriously. There's a poster sticker that says we're all here because we're not all there. (laughs) 
and some seekers have made it their quest to find Lemuria, hence the digging. Our first thought was just, you know, somebody who believes the stories about the mountain is looking for Lemuria. Even Elijah's own parents are seekers, drawn to the mountain by spiritual forces. People make pilgrimages here. Like, that's, that is what it is. It's, so, it's like a New Age Mecca. You'll hear a lot of people talking about Lemuria, maybe even asking for directions. Um, you'll have to tell me when you find it. <laughs> the second theory about why someone decided to dig a giant hole on Mount Shasta 10 years ago is a little more tangible. And it gets at a very different part of the area's history. There was actually a pretty long history of Native American artifact looting here. And it makes sense because the Native, there's so, so many tribes have been here over so many centuries. Digging for artifacts like arrowheads or human remains without a permit is a serious crime. And this happens more than you might think. A few years ago, there was a big looting investigation just across the border in Oregon's Klamath County. I called two Oregon State police officers who have worked on looting cases. When I described this hole to them, they said, oh yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like looters. I talked to the Forest Service, and they actually disagree with Elijah's sources. They told me there aren't a lot of Native American artifacts on the mountain. But that doesn't mean that local tribes approved of the hole. Good night, my love. We heard about the hole. (laughs) Forest Service didn't catch it until it was like, what, 30 feet deep or 60? That's Colleen Sisk. She's the leader of the Winnemum-Wintu tribe, which is indigenous to the McLeod River area of Northern California. We met for coffee, and she told me that she's not a fan of people who come to Mount Shasta seeking fulfillment, whether spiritual or material. Too often, they alter the mountain— They leave trash or they wander off the trails. I mean, it's like eating the goose that lays the golden egg. It's like here they've got this golden egg going, but they're killing the goose. See, Mount Shasta is sacred to the Winnemumwintu. We came out of that mountain, and so we're um, obligated to be the watchers of this mountain. We're trying to save this mountain. Colleen likes to say that those who recreate wreck their creation. (laughs) They do it for fun, recreating. (laughs) Uh, We don't go above the tree line. We can revere that mountain, and we can think it's beautiful, and we can know that it's powerful without climbing to the top. The problem is, the city of Mount Shasta really counts on the money that visitors bring in. Hello, Couch Critics. Who am I just speaking? Even Couch Critics, the video shop where Elijah works when he isn't making his documentary about the hole, benefits from tourism. One of our customers makes little Lemuria-themed things, so here's our penny tray with a Lemuria sticker. The walls of the shop are covered with movie posters and action figures, and there's a small TV in the corner that's always playing some obscure or culty movie. Everyone who comes in knows Elijah. And they all want to know about the hole. And here, in the video shop, we arrive at theory number three, about why someone dug the mysterious 60-foot hole on Mount Shasta. You don't Stay. work for the Forest Service, do you? Yes, I do. You do? Yeah. Did you ever see that hole that was up on Mount Shasta in 2009 that they found? The what? They found oh, this big... The hole? I was one of the people that found it. 
Bingo. Discovered it was these guys that had apparently purchased a mining claim deed from some dude that had said that there was all this gold there. And so Did you catch that? that he said the diggers were looking for gold. Oh, I love that. It's, it's, so, you know, being in a small town doesn't always suck, right? I mean, that, yeah, I don't even mind that I'm working for minimum wage because I just, I just cracked a case, you know, right, right before your eyes. Yeah, you must have liked that, huh? Yeah. Like, that was like, you thought, like, I'm going to get this. Maybe he'll say something interesting while he's giving a tour of his nerd palace, you know, but it's like, <laughs> the case breaks right there. <laughs> Finding it's always a little bit of an adventure. There used to be a trail, and the trail has slowly disappeared over the years, and now it's like just completely gone. And the trail was created by the diggers. This is where it was. We're standing on the spot where the uh, hole was. Elijah and I are standing in the middle of a forest on Mount Shasta, and it's kind of a mess. The hole was completely filled in soon after it was discovered, and the area looks like it's been logged pretty recently. Elijah tells me that someone with a phony mining claim was eventually prosecuted for digging the hole. I talked to the Forest Service, and they agree. The diggers were looking for gold, which wouldn't be totally unprecedented. There is a history of gold rush era mining in the area. But the Forest Service told me that because of the volcanic geology near the hole, there's probably no gold there. So, case closed. But no matter what the diggers were looking for, an underground world, Native American artifacts, or gold, Elijah isn't ready to let go of the mystery just yet. There's always going to be questions. And even with the documents, then it's going to become, so which person's telling the truth? Are any of these people telling the truth? It's a perfect blank slate for people to project. It's just a hole. It's just like, what do you think this was? It's like a, like a Rorschach test, but even more abstract. It's just a hole. And so every conceivable thing that a person would look for is at the bottom of that hole to somebody. Elijah points to a white five-gallon bucket at the base of a nearby tree. It's sturdy and cracked and lying on its side among the discarded branches, like it's just been kicked over. It's the kind of bucket you'd use for mixing paint or for moving dirt. That's still there after... Nine years. I ask Elijah what kind of ending he imagines for his documentary. The way I imagine that would end is, you know, they wouldn't have found what they were looking for. Something interrupted the process. One Forest Service person told me that they got interrupted, and at that time they thought they were three feet from their goal. Maybe it is down there, but instead of 63 feet, it's 66 feet. <laughs> That's right. It's right there. Um... I like the idea of it ending in um, a little mystery. Right? That's a good ending. For the California Report, I'm Kat Shooknecht in Mount Shasta. California Report Magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Our producer-director is Susie Racho, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. 
We had additional engineering by Seal Muller. Our team also includes Lisa Morehouse, Amanda Font, Katrina Schwartz, Olivia Allen Price, and MJ Johnson. I'm Sasha Coca. Have a great holiday weekend, everybody. This is the California Report Magazine, your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.